It's a joy to be here with you tonight, study God's Word. Tonight we'll be studying the book of Zephaniah. Have any of you ever been home alone, either just by yourself or with your siblings, while your parents went off for a trip without you? You were entrusted to watch the house on your own. Somehow, presumably because you're old, perhaps because you've demonstrated some responsibility, they left you as the keeper of their precious homestead for a few days. This scenario has been used as a plot line for many a movie, as you know, and generally there's two buckets of responses or two ways that kids will conduct themselves or handle themselves while their parents are away. Option number one would be to be incredibly irresponsible. They instantaneously start texting and calling all their friends, party in my place. Often in movies this occurs and this party planning begins to happen right after they take a solemn blood oath to their parents that they will not plan a party while the parents are away. Option number two would be to be responsible and courteous and take care of the house, honor their parents while they're gone. This would involve not planning a wild party and destroying the tables and the chairs and the carpet. In fact, it could even include going above and beyond and showing kindness to your parents by unexpectedly taking care of chores on their behalf so that when they get home after a long day of travel and before having to unpack and prepare for work, they have one less thing to worry about. My tender-hearted brother, Jeffrey, once stayed home while my parents were away during the winter a few years back, and while they were gone, he spent his own money to purchase some indoor Christmas lights, and he set those up all throughout the house for several hours, and blessed my parents very much when they got home. It was very sweet. But think about it. Think about how the kids who acted either responsibly or irresponsibly, how would they be thinking about the return of their parents? How would they be anticipating that? For the kid who's trashed the house and invited friends over, they're incredibly apprehensive, frantically racing around the house, throwing away all the trash, trying to cover up all the debauchery and hide it. They may even live in a degree of fear for a few weeks, thinking, oh, I don't know if I hid everything. I don't know if I threw everything away. Perhaps they'll be found out. In contrast to that, think about the kid who took good care of the house, and honored his parents while the parents were away. They'll be looking forward to the return of their parents. It'll be a joyful reunion when the parents drive up in the driveway. They were well prepared for their parents' return. Much like a child whose parents are temporarily entrusting them with the care of the house, all men and women have been blessed with lives and responsibility here on here while the Lord resides in heaven after Jesus' ascension. In contrast to parents who might forget to remind their kids of a task they want completed or a rule they want kept, the Lord has revealed to us everything we need for life and godliness through his word. We each have two options, honor and obey God, seek him, or rebel. The theme of the book of Zephaniah is future global judgment. In this book, the Lord reveals that there is a future day in which God will judge the world, a day known as the day of the Lord. This day is imminent. The day is coming quickly. 
This is a day where all will bow the knee to the Lord, one way or another. This is a day when many will be desolated, but this is a day when many will be overjoyed. This is a day where the proud will be humbled, yet this is a day when violence, deceit, idolatry, and disregard for the Lord will finally and completely be punished. Yet it's a day where a believing remnant will be spared. This is the day of the Lord. The Lord wants all of mankind to be aware of the imminent and fast-approaching day of the Lord. What will this day entail? What do you personally need to know about the day of the Lord? Well, in the book of Zephaniah, the Lord reveals two aspects of the day of the Lord that we must all be aware of to inform how we live our lives. Let's study this book together. Turn with me to the book of Zephaniah, if you're not there already. From the beginning of chapter 1 to chapter 3, verse 8, the Lord reveals the first aspect of the day of the Lord that we must be aware of. And that aspect is judgment. This first aspect is judgment. In chapter 1, verse 1, Zephaniah first provides us with the background and the context in which he's writing and on himself and his genealogy. Look down at Zephaniah 1, 1. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. The Lord says, this is a word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah. God spoke to Zephaniah with a prophecy of judgment. We see that Zephaniah traces his bloodline back to his great-great-grandfather named Hezekiah. So this very likely seems to be a reference to King Hezekiah of Judah from several generations back. Because Zephaniah was a descendant of royal blood, it seems likely that he may have had sway with King Josiah of Judah. They may have been relatives. And so the Lord may have even used Zephaniah's ministry and his prophecy here as one of the means that convicted King Josiah to perform his many reforms that we learn about in Judah and the books of Kings and Chronicles. He says this word of the Lord came during the reign of King Josiah. Josiah ruled during 604, or 640 rather, to 609 BC, so about 30 years. As we'll see as we unpack this book a little bit, it seems like there are many, many kinds of sins going on in Judah. The Lord has very harsh word, words for the nation of Judah, especially about their idolatry. So there was little to indicate that any kind of reforms were in place during the time of Zephaniah's prophecy. So it seems likely that Zephaniah prophesied during the earlier part of Josiah's reign before Josiah tore down the altars to Baal in 628 BC and before he rediscovered the book of the law. While Josiah was a righteous king and the descendant, his shared descendant was Zephaniah, King Hezekiah, he also ruled in a holy manner. If you've studied the book of Kings at all or the book of the books of Chronicles, you'll know that there were many wicked kings of Judah. Several before and in between Josiah and Hezekiah were very wicked. Manasseh, Ammon, just to name a few. And the people of Judah weren't pushing back against the king. They were going right along. They were encouraging the king's sin. So the whole nation was often living in sin. 
the Lord was soon to reveal to Zephaniah that a day of judgment is coming on Judah. In verses 2 and 3, though, the Lord begins his scathing warning about the day of the Lord by discussing the judgment of all the world. Judgment of all the world. Look down at verse 2. The Lord says, I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Well, clearly this is not just isolated judgment to one nation or one ethnic. Man made in his own image from the face of the earth. This is a total destruction of all of rebellious mankind. When does this happen? Is there any escape? As we progress through the book of Zephaniah, we'll see more and more detail on this future judgment of all the world. But as we come to verses 4 to 13, the Lord zeroes in the discussion of the day of the Lord. After discussing the eschatological fulfillment of the day of the Lord that is yet to be fulfilled even in our day, the Lord says that there will be a much more immediate judgment that will be coming on the nation of Judah. So we see a judgment of Judah in verses 4 to 13. Look down at verse 4. The Lord says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, and those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven, and those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. God says that he's going to lift up his hand against Judah. Why is he going to punish them? He notes that Baal is being worshipped in the nation, this nation that was set apart for Yahweh. God's chosen people bowing down and swearing by these false deities. They turned away from following God. They were no longer seeking the Lord, but they were seeking idols instead. God says in verse 7, to be silent before him because the day of the Lord is near. God is soon going to punish Judah. Throughout verses 8 to 13, God continues to discuss this punishment as well as the grounds for the punishment. Verse 10 says that on the day of judgment there will be cries and wails all throughout Judah. Many tears shed on this day. Verse 13 says that the judgment would include utter plundering rather and desolation of the wealth and the houses and properties in Judah. Thomas Renz, the commentator, points out that in contrast, if you think back to the way Habakkuk described the Babylonian exile, which is what the Lord has in mind here in Zephaniah, if you think about the way Habakkuk described it, there was the discussion of the Chaldeans and the human instruments God was going to use to punish Judah. But here in Zephaniah, God makes no reference, no specific reference to the human agents that will be used to punish his people for their sin. Here, it's only the Lord that enacts this judgment. Ultimately, when would this prophecy of judgment come upon the nation of Judah? Really, if you think about it, it was only 20 to 30 years after Zephaniah was written when Nebuchadnezzar and 
Babylon would come and conquer Jerusalem in 605 BC. God was not going to be slow about punishing the sin of his people. So why was the Lord stretching out his hand against Judah? Because of their idolatry. We must fight idolatry. Paul warns the Corinthians to avoid the mistakes of the Israelites in 1 Corinthians 10. And in 1 Corinthians 10.14 he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Paul says in Galatians 4.8, At that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. For you in Christ, before your salvation, you were a slave to idols. They're not really gods, but that's how you treated them. That's how I treated them. You may have worshipped any number of things. Perhaps you worshipped friends and having the status of being part of an elite social group. And that was what your heart loved more than anything else. Perhaps you worshipped sports and that was all you spent your time on or cared about. That was all you, that was all you wanted was to win and excel. Perhaps you worship more base desires like food or lust and those desires just absolutely consumed your soul. Maybe you worship possessions, the latest phone, the coolest sports car, the trendiest clothes. Whatever you used to worship, though, believer, you now worship the Lord. God has changed your heart, causing you to be born again, to be regenerated. Your new heart loves God supremely, and you must rid your heart of any idols. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. My prayer is that you would renew your resolve today. Pray to the Lord in humble dependence that your affection would supremely be for the Lord. Flee from idolatry. Don't fall into the traps that the Jews did, worshiping idols. After the Lord discusses the judgment of Judah, he again broadens the focus of the day of the Lord to the judgment of all the world in verses 14 to 18. Judgment of all the world. Look down with me near the beginning of verse 14. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. What a day that will be. The day is near, the Lord says. The day is coming quickly. The day will be characterized by wrath and destruction. Great loss of life, much bloodshed. Look down at verses 17 and 18. The Lord says, I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete end Indeed, a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. Again, we see bloodshed, destruction of flesh, 
the earth devoured by fire, a complete end of all the inhabitants of the earth. And did you catch the reason for this destruction and desolation in verse 17? All this distress is because they have sinned against the Lord. Clearly, many of these aspects of the day of the Lord have not been fulfilled yet. The Babylonian exile was a type of the day of the Lord. But there's still a future fulfillment that will bring complete and utter global judgment on all of unbelieving mankind. One day this judgment will come where Jesus will destroy all unbelievers as he treads underfoot the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. God says in verse 18 that he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. We saw this back in verses 2 and 3 even, where the Lord said he would remove all things from the face of the earth, man, beast, Ruins, wicked. To make this more personal, for any of you who have not turned to the Lord in repentance and faith, God's wrath is being stored up against you for the day of judgment because of your sin and your disobedience to his commands. In John 3.36, the Lord says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wages of committing sin is death, eternal separation from God. And as we see in Revelation, God's wrath is going to be revealed in stages, this day of the Lord. Unbelievers alive during the tribulation period will be punished with all kinds of plagues and judgments as God reveals his displeasure against their sin. Yet they continue to rebel. At the end of the tribulation, our Lord will return and destroy all unbelievers in the battle of Armageddon, as we see prophesied even here in Zephaniah 1. There will be another great judgment and slaughter of God's enemies at the end of Jesus' millennial reign when unbelievers rally against him in war, inspired by Satan. In the final stage of God's wrath, perhaps the most fearsome, comes in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, where the Lord tells us that after Jesus' millennial reign, there will be a great white throne judgment. All the dead will be judged according to their deeds, and all dead have sinned against the Lord. Anyone's name who is not found written in the book of life will be thrown in the lake of fire. Jesus says in Matthew 25, 46, that this is an eternal punishment but the righteous will go into eternal life. So how can you be included with the righteous? How can you ensure your name is written in the book of life? How can you one day hear the blessed words from your Lord, well done, good and faithful slave, enter into the joy of your master? You must repent and believe. Peter says in Acts 3.19, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that a time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Give up your sins, repent, and place your faith in Jesus Christ today. Any of you who have not cast yourself on Jesus in repentance and faith, consider God's wrath here in Zephaniah. Consider his gracious offer of forgiveness that he says, Come to me, 
all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Consider the blessings he offers those who are his. Seek the Lord, and you will be hidden in the day of his anger. As we come to chapter 2, the judgment continues with a judgment of the proud and unrepentant. Verses 1 to 3. Here, God graciously offers the people of Judah the opportunity to turn from their wicked ways and to seek God. Otherwise, there will be no chance to be hidden in the day of the Lord. Look down at chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The Lord says, Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation, without shame. Before the decree takes effect, the day passes like the chaff. Before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord. Any of you who have been tracking with me and studying these fearsome judgments that have been leveled against Judah and all of rebellious mankind, here in this section, you'll find a moment of reprieve. Like a fresh drink of chilled water on a hot summer's day in the desert, here we find a refreshing opportunity. Here the Lord offers every man and woman on earth the option to be hidden from these coming judgments. What characterizes those who will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger? What must you do to be hidden from God's anger to take this refreshing opportunity? First, and foundationally, you must seek the Lord. You must seek the Lord in prayer, begging him for forgiveness, longing for a right relationship with him. These people who are hidden in the day of the Lord, they're believers, men and women who have been born again after seeking the Lord in repentance and faith. But secondly, we see that those hidden in the day of the Lord, they placed their faith in Christ at a moment in time, and yet now they're living humbly, seeking humility, the Lord says in verse 3. We'll soon see the pride of the nations surrounding Judah through the rest of chapter 2. But in contrast to that, God's people are humble. God's people walk in humility. Finally, verse 3 indicates that those saved from the Lord's anger are those who carry out his ordinances and seek righteousness. They obey God's word. They obey the commands. The Lord has saved them. They've sought the Lord in repentance and faith and humility. They live in humility and now they obey God's law and they seek to obey it better each day. What are God's commands? Just a few that I'll name here would include worshiping him. That's a command. He commands us to fellowship with other believers. He commands us to know and study and meditate on his word. He commands us to share the good news of salvation and evangelism. These are just a few of God's ordinances. Do you carry them out? I urge each of you, and I had to test myself, I urge you to test yourselves, to see if you are consistently walking in humility. See if you are obedient to God's ordinances. Most of all, test yourself to see if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. These things characterize those who have 
trusted in the Lord and who will be hidden in the day of his anger. Praise God that if we seek him with all our hearts, if we walk in humility, if we keep his commands, if we're people that are obedient, we will be hidden from this future global judgment. But as we come to the remainder of chapter 2, the Lord reveals the judgment of Judah's enemies. Judgment of Judah's enemies. Here the Lord condemns four of the nations that surround Judah. As we saw a couple weeks ago in Habakkuk, if you remember, it's very easy for Judah's pagan enemies to look down in haughtiness and sneer at Judah, laugh at them whenever trouble comes their way. They may have even questioned the legitimacy of Judah's God, thinking that any nation who crumbled like that must not have been worshiping the true God. But the Lord is clear in this chapter that all the wicked will suffer punishment from God. None can escape the day of the Lord unless they're right with Jesus. In chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, the Lord condemns Philistia. Look down at verse 4. The Lord says, For Gaza will be abandoned, and Ashkelon a desolation. Ashdod will be driven out at noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. These four cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron, they were four of the five major cities of the nation of Philistia. This nation was located to the west of Israel. The Lord says in verse 5 that one day the Lord was going to destroy them and they would have no inhabitants left. He even says in verses 6 and 7 that Judah one day would pasture in the Philistines' land. How humbling that must have been to hear. This would be the repayment for their sin and their idol worship. As we come to verses 8 through 11, the Lord proclaims a judgment against Moab and Ammon. The nations of Moab and Ammon. Look down at verse 8. God says, I have heard the taunting of Moab and the revilings of the sons of Ammon with which they have taunted my people and become arrogant against their territory. Moab and Ammon are located to the east of Israel. These are descendants of Abraham's nephew Lot. If you recall, Lot's daughters, after Lot and his family uh, were able to flee from Sodom and Gomorrah, they didn't see a way that they would find husbands. And so they decided on back-to-back nights to get their father drunk so that they could commit incest with him, so they could carry on their, their family line. This was a grievous, wicked sin, and The sons that were born as a result of those incestuous nights were Moab and Ammon. So that's where these nations come from. Using a bit of irony in verse 9, the Lord compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah, these nations, and the way that they would be destroyed because they became arrogant against God and his people and they were committing such sins they were going to be destroyed like Sodom. Look down at verse 10. The Lord says, this they will have in return for their pride because they have taunted and become arrogant against the people of the Lord of hosts. As we saw in Habakkuk, again, we see here in Zephaniah, the Lord hates the proud. The Lord hates pride. In this case, God is condemning the pride of the nations who are looking haughtily towards 
Judah and the Jews. They were proud and taunting. This boastful pride is wicked. This characterizes the world, John says in 1 John 2. It's not from God. What does Jesus say? What are his first words in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Each of us must be humble, poor in spirit, like the tax collector that Jobin taught us about in Luke 18 that was unwilling even to lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. May each of us be humble. As God concludes his judgment of Moab and Ammon, he reminds us in verse 11 that one day, all the coastlands of the nation will bow down to God, everyone from his home place, all the nations. Despite the rebellion, all the rebellion that we see against the Lord in our day. Never forget that one day every knee is going to bow. This brings to mind Philippians 2. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord for the glory of God the Father. In chapter 2, verse 12, the Lord condemns Ethiopia. Look down at verse 12. He says, You also, O Ethiopians, will be slain by my sword. Ethiopia, also known as Cush, is a nation comprised of the descendants of Ham, Noah's son, if you remember. They resided south of Israel. They, Ethiopians ruled in Egypt in the 7 and 600s BC, and so this may be broadly a reference, this being slain by the sword may be a reference to Babylon and their destruction of Egypt, recorded in Ezekiel 30. Regardless, Ethiopia one day would face judgment from the Lord for their sin. The final nation God condemns as he concludes chapter 2 is Assyria. Look down at verse 13. He says, And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, parched like the wilderness. Assyria was the great empire to the northeast of Judah that preceded the Babylonian Empire for much of the 7th century. Nineveh was its capital city, so you see Nineveh included in this condemnation as well. Look at verse 15. The Lord says, This is the exultant city which dwells securely, who says in her heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. How she has become a desolation, a resting place for beasts. Everyone who passes by her will hiss and wave his hand in contempt. Look at this arrogance that the Assyrians have. I am, there is no one beside me. As you know, the Lord is the only eternal I am. And yet, these Assyrians, they dwelled securely. They felt so proud, so smug. They were all set. No need to recognize the Lord. Yet we know from history that Babylon completely destroyed Assyria. As the Lord prophesies in chapter 2, verse 15, that she will become a desolation. Each of these nations the Lord condemns here in this section in the latter part of chapter 2. Each of them will face judgment and face judgment. Likewise, all of rebellious mankind who does not place their faith in the Lord will be desolated. 
As we come to chapter 3, the Lord returns to discussing the judgment of Judah again in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3. Here he gives the reasons for this judgment. First, Judah is going to be judged because of the sin of the people, as we see in verses 1 and 2. Look down at verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. She accepted no instruction. Have you ever met someone who is really pig-headed? Someone who you can repeat the same word of wisdom to a thousand times and it just doesn't seem to enter into their ears. They don't seem to get it. Someone who hears their parents or their pastors or their siblings or other godly counsel give them words of wisdom over and over, telling them to change course, and yet they continually just go do the opposite. Regrettably, when I was a child, I was often quite stubborn and completely disregarded instruction at times. The Lord has worked on me in that regard. Proverbs 17.10 says that a rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Literally, a single piece of corrective advice to a wise person has more of an impact than a hundred punches to someone who's foolish. It seeps in further than it does for a fool to get punched a hundred times. It seems a little crazy, but... Those of you who are stubborn or have a relative or a close family member who is stubborn, you, you get the point of this proverb. This is how God is discussing the people of Judah in Zephaniah 3. They're rebellious. They don't listen to any of the warnings of God's prophets. They don't listen to any of the instructions God has given them. In light of this coming judgment, each of us must test ourselves, test our hearts, Test your heart before the Lord to see if you're humble and if you listen to godly counsel and wise advice or if you're one that heeds no voice and accepts no instruction. Did you catch the description of the people at the end of verse 2? The Lord says that the nation of Judah, she did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. We saw back in chapter 1 that what they were turning to and what they were drawing near to was idols, especially the false god Baal, rather than coming to the Lord. How often do we fail to trust in the Lord and draw near to our God? When you're exhausted or fatigued or in pain, what do you turn to? When you feel rejected by friends, what do you draw near to? When you come up short in school or at your job, when life's not going your way, how do you put your soul at ease? How do you comfort yourself? It's so easy for us to turn to anything but God. It's so easy to turn to food or to music or to shopping, to fitness, to sleep to sexual sin, to anger, to gossip, to social media, good things and bad. We often want to draw near to anything else for comfort but God. But God's desire is for us to draw near to him, to seek our comfort 
to trust in him, only from him. People often refer to foods like pizza or spaghetti or biscuits as comfort foods, which again gets at this concept of going to something when you're at a suboptimal time in life, you're feeling pain or difficulty, you're not feeling well, you need a pick-me-up, what do you turn to? Turn to the Lord. We should relish and great delight in the comfort of our Father. I'm reminded of the words of the song Enough by Chris Tomlin that we used to sing in the high school group. All of you is more than enough for all of me, for every thirst and every need. God, you satisfy me with your love. All I have in you is more than enough. Comfort yourself in the Lord and in him alone. In chapter 3, verse 3, the Lord discusses the sin of the rulers as he condemns the nation of Judah. He condemns them for the sin of the rulers. Look down at verse 3. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves at evening. They leave nothing for the morning. There's a lot of corruption going on in Judah at this time, if you can't tell. The princes, judges, the political rulers... They're self-serving. They're seeking their own, taking advantage of the people. They're characterized here by the Lord as lions or wolves eating up, scarfing down the people for their own selfish gain, for their own delight. Judah's leaders will be judged, and they were part of the reason Judah had to be punished. In chapter 3, verse 4, the Lord discusses not just the political leaders, but the spiritual leaders of the day. The sin of the spiritual leaders is what he condemns. Verse 4 says, Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The prophets and the priests on the whole had completely disregarded the Lord. They weren't living up to their calling. They had allowed sin to defile the sanctuary of God. They too had contributed to this need for Judah to be punished. So God has roundly condemned all of Judah. No one was exempt. The political leaders, the spiritual caretakers, and the people themselves, the common folk. Judah's earned every bit of judgment at every level of society. This Babylonian exile was well-deserved. In verses 5 through 7 of chapter 3, the Lord contrasts the sin that Judah had earned with her punishment, punishment, with the justice of the Lord. We see this justice in strong, stark contrast to the sin of Judah. Look down at verse five. The Lord is righteous within her. He will do no injustice. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He does not fail. We just saw all this corruption of the priests and the judges alike taking crude advantage of the populace. In contrast, God is righteous. God's never going to act unjustly. In verses 6 and 7, he tells more of that justice and how he punishes shameless sinners. He keeps giving them opportunities to repent and to submit to him and show reverence. Yet at the end of verse 7, he says they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. Just like with us today, so often God shows such grace. He shows such time for us to repent 
and yet men often only shove him away. This was the case too often for the nation of Judah. So the Lord determined that it was very near time for them to be punished. As we come to the conclusion of this discussion of judgment, God once more discusses the finality of the judgment with the judgment of all the world. Look down at verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation. All my burning anger for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. As we've seen all throughout this book, those who choose not to seek the Lord to be hidden in the day of his wrath, they will receive the full force of God's judgment and his indignation and be devoured by the fire of his zeal when the day of the Lord comes. Yet here in this dark, difficult, gloomy passage, this prophecy where we've seen incessant condemnation, we've seen ruthless judgment, violent bloodshed, intense anger, here the Lord reveals hope. I mentioned that there are two aspects of the day of the Lord that all men must be aware of to know how to conduct their lives here on earth. From chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 8, we saw the judgment, but here we see the hope. And what a wonderful hope it is. First, in verses 9 and 10, the Lord reveals hope for believing Gentiles. Look down at verses 9 and 10. I don't want you to miss this. The Lord says, For then I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. After the judgment is done, after all the plagues of the tribulation are through, after Jesus has crushed the rebellion at the end of the tribulation and the battle of Armageddon, and set up his millennial kingdom with all his saints. There we see the hope. The Lord will give to the people's purified lips. As we've seen in the book of Revelation and Tom's teaching there, we've learned that Old and New Testament believers will be given glorified bodies in the rapture, bodies like Jesus Christ our Lord. Believers who are martyred in the tribulation will be resurrected and given glorified bodies as well at the end of the tribulation. We will all have pure lips and pure hearts, no longer with any capability to sin. Here in Zephaniah, the Lord says we will serve him shoulder to shoulder. We'll even be able to bring offerings to him. What hope that for all who repent and believe in Christ, we will reign with him and will even be his priests for a thousand years on earth. What hope. As we come to the end of this chapter and the end of this book, the Lord reveals the hope for the humble Jews. Hope for the humble Jews. We see hope for the Jews and Gentiles alike. After all the condemnation of the Jews of Zephaniah's day, God promises at the end of verse 11 that Judah will never again be haughty on God's holy mountain. 
Verses 12 and 13, the Lord discusses the holy and the humble remnant, those Jews who had stayed true to the Lord, who had sought him in faith, who had been obedient and righteous. Those Jews one day will inhabit Jerusalem during the millennial reign of Christ. Look down at verse 14. God says, Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughters of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. What a comfort that must have been to the repentant, God-fearing Jews in Zephaniah's day. Verses 16 and 17 reveal that in the millennial kingdom, none of God's people will need to fear, for Jesus will literally be in their midst. Jesus will love them, he says, and rejoice over them with shouts of joy. Verses 18 to 20, God makes it clear that Judah will no longer be in exile in that day, and that Jesus will have avenged them against their oppressors and will gather them to himself and restore their fortunes before their eyes. What a hope they must have had. What a hope for men like King Josiah, righteous men that they could cling to, that despite this Babylonian exile, all the judgment we saw in those early chapters, we have a hope. It turns out well in the end for those who have trusted in Christ. Judah's exile would not be permanent. One day, all the righteous and obedient Jews, the God-fearing Jews, will have the Lord in their midst. We read much about the millennial reign of Jesus in the Old and the New Testaments. Pastor Tom has taught through Revelation 20 recently and hit on many of the other passages that discuss the millennium. But another passage that discusses Jesus' earthly reign is Isaiah 2.4 which teaches that there will be no war during the course of Jesus' reign. Isaiah 6, or 11 rather, 6 through 9, says the children will be able to put their hands in the hole of a viper or a snake and be completely unharmed because there will be no violence in Jesus' kingdom. I don't have time to reference all the passages that discuss the millennium, but feel free to jot down several references that discuss it if you'd like to study this further. Joel 3, 18 to 20. Micah 4, 1 to 13. Romans 11, 25 and 26. Isaiah 59, 12 and 13. And Isaiah 35. These are just a few of the other texts that discuss this blessed hope that each of us can look forward to, each of us who have trusted in Christ. So what do we take away from this? Believer, be encouraged in the difficult times of life because you have an incredible hope in store for you. You will receive a glorified body like Jesus's at the rapture. And God has promised that you will join Jesus in a literal thousand-year reign here on this earth. You'll be given purified lips. You'll be holy. You'll be free of sin. All that sin that you hate and that you're fighting every day completely gone. John says in 1 John 3 that when Jesus appears, we will be like him because we'll see him just as he is. We'll be free of sin. 
as if that's not enough. Jesus gives us roles of authority and service in his thousand-year reign. We get to be priests. We have an incredible hope. In Zephaniah 3, God gives us a promise that we will serve Jesus shoulder to shoulder alongside believers of all generations. Look forward to that. There will finally be peace on the whole earth when Jesus takes his throne in Jerusalem. We see so much war and so much hate in our day. So many governments are so corrupt. Yet in the day when Jesus rules, there will be no war. There'll be no corruption. Jesus will be in our midst. Believer, think of how short your life is here in the church age. You will likely live for 70 to 80 years. While we look forward to the moment, we very much look forward to the moment when we're absent with the body and at home with the Lord, we also have reason for incredible excitement and much anticipation when we look forward to the millennial reign of Jesus here on this earth, where there's peace, where all the nations are learning from Jesus himself in Jerusalem. Look forward to this blessed millennial reign of Jesus. This is the message God would have you consider here in Zephaniah, whether you're a believer or not. Either way, the day of the Lord will come. It's coming quickly. It will either be a day of judgment, where you're subjected to darkness and desolation and slaughter, or if you've truly repented of your sins, and you've trusted Christ wholly, this is the day of hope where you get to begin your service in the presence of Christ and his kingdom. I think the old German commentator, Kiel, summarizes Zephaniah well when he says, this book contains the fundamental thoughts of judgment and salvation, which are common to all the prophets. In line with the rest of the prophets and with all of scripture, really, we see here that you only have two options, rebellion and judgment or repentance and hope. I pray that you would choose the latter, that you experience the thousand-year reign of Christ in joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for warning us. Thank you for not hiding your wrath against our sins such that we were taken off guard in the judgment, unaware that we had wronged you, unaware that we were going to be punished. Thank you that you've given us so much time to repent, so much more than we deserve. I pray that any who have not bowed the knee to you before today would do so before their eyes shut for sleep tonight, God, and that they would consider the seriousness and the imminence of your judgment. But God, thank you for all those that you have brought to genuine faith in this room. I pray that each of them would rejoice at the hope laid up in store for them. Let each of us have Christ fixed as our gaze and help us to purify ourselves just as he is pure. In your holy name I pray, amen.